Selden paused in surprise. In the afternoon rush of the Grand Central Station, his eyes had been refreshed by the sight of Miss Lily Bart. It was a Monday in early September, and he was returning to his work from a hurried dip into the country. But what was Miss Bart doing in town at that season? If she had appeared to be catching a train, he might have inferred that he had come on her in the act of transition between one and another of the country houses which disputed her presence after the close of the Newport season. But her desultory air perplexed him. She stood apart from the crowd, letting it drift by her to the platform or the street, and wearing an air of irresolution which might, as he surmised, be the mask of a very definite purpose. It struck him at once that she was waiting for someone, but he hardly knew why the idea arrested him. There was nothing new about Lily Bart, yet he could never see her without a faint movement of interest. It was characteristic of her that she always roused speculation that her simplest acts seemed the result of far-reaching intentions. Shh. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf Book on wine at your shelf or mine, your shelf or mine. Hello and welcome to your shelf or mine. I'm Becky Standle, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. But not for too much longer. That's true. Austin, tell us about your new role. I have been lucky enough to be chosen to, to take over as the circulation specialist. Starting, we're recording this on April 21st, and I will be starting on May 2nd. So next time you hear from me... I will be different, but the same. Congratulations. Thank you. Today on our podcast, enough with that, we'll yeah. be talking about Edith Wharton and her work. Yes, the R Shelf Challenge continues. This is one that I had been very excited about. As usual, I had illusions of reading, you know, much more of her work than I did, but she was prolific. I think mm -hmm. on average, she published like a book per year for mm -hmm. like a, almost a 30-year period in her career. So there's a lot of Edith Wharton. There's a lot. Let's start and talk about our previous to Your Shelf Challenge experience with Edith Wharton and maybe why a little bit why we picked her for the challenge this year. Okay. My experience with Edith Wharton is really recent within the last year. As some of the longtime listeners, longtime fans might <laughs> remember, Becky and I made a literary pilgrimage to New England um, in October of 2022. And one of the stops, you know, when in Lenox, Massachusetts, one of the stops was the Mount, uh, Edith Wharton's storied home that she designed and had built there. And the reason we ended up going to the Mount, because Edith Wharton wasn't really on our radar before, when we'd been planning the trip, I read this young adult novel called Things That Grow, which is about a girl whose grandmother, who was her like primary caregiver, has passed and she and her friend and her uncle are taking her ashes around to places where things grow. And one of her favorite places that she loved was Edith Wharton's home and the grounds there. And so that plays a role in that book, which was what made me want to visit. 
Yeah, yeah, and and it came recommended. It seems mm-hmm. like when you spoke to people you knew who had familiarity with the area as one of the stops, people really enjoyed. I guess the only other, I mean, I knew the name. Everybody knows mm-hmm. Edith Wharton. It maybe has some vague mental picture. There but, was a period uh, of time where high schoolers read Ethan Frome a lot. As a matter of course. I guess my other experience working in the library with Edith Wharton was not really knowing her work, but she's one of the classic authors in our adult collection that cir- circulates. She's got a persistent audience. Um, and I know we've actually bought, replaced new copies of, of Edith Wharton things in the last couple of years because they are just always circulating which I think is interesting. So the mount, let's talk about the mount. Sure. So we did two tours while we were there. We had a Russian, we were trying to like see too many things at once and had a terrible experience at this restaurant where we ordered to go breakfast. And then after waiting half an hour, just had to leave because it, it never go, came. Man. Let it go, Oh, Becky. I was so mad. And then we had to shortchange the Norman Rockwell Museum, which... Yeah if you're around, is a great museum. Yeah. But we made it to the mountain, kind of like hustle. They had certain times for the tours, and we're like hustling up the drive because it's not one of those where you, you pull up right up to it in your car. It's like you pull up into the parking lot, and then it's like you got to trek through the grounds, you know, to get to the main house. So this house is one that she designed. I think her first book that she had published was about design. Yes, about houses. Yeah, yeah. decoration of houses. So like the idea of this drive, I, I think I remember it being like, a river where you kind of like there's turns and you like come upon the home and then it's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. They also had kind of a sculpture gardeny thing going on all along the driveway too. Right. Because right now the house is owned by a trust. Yes. It went through all of this other stuff. It was part of a school and yeah. The was- only house we went to where they didn't have anything surviving from when the author owned it, except for stuff that the trust has been able to acquire. acquire. Yeah, that was one of the things, and we may have touched on this in earlier episodes, but we really had an education, and I think this was a sort of a unplanned benefit of our trip, in this world of like historic home mm-hmm. conservation and the different sort of paths that these properties take, you know, from, you know, the demise of their owner or the sale or whatever to actually making it to something that's preserved. And sometimes they are preserved like a a shrine by some relative. And sometimes they are all manner of other things. It was really fascinating. And also one of the things that was really interesting to me was that I think either for most people, you either think of these houses, they're they're preserved and that's a static dead thing. It's Mm. they're preserved or they weren't preserved and now we've preserved them and we're done. Mm -hmm. These are living things, so to speak, where these people, these incredible people who take care of them are constantly learning more, evolving, acquiring new items that are returning to the house. I think if I remember correctly, one of the things who the, the very like elegant tour guide was telling us was that Edith Wharton's books Mm -hmm. are on their way back. They're sort of being, processed back to the house the the trust almost went bankrupt purchasing them Mm -hmm. um, but they've recovered now and so her books are coming yeah her personal collection of books her personal library Mm -hmm. which i think may have been housed at some at a college or at a or maybe a private collection i don't i'm not i wasn't clear on who they were buying them from but she was she was excited yeah and i think she said like a lot of them have her annotations in them It's very cool. I'm sure people gifted her. She was friends with a lot of people. I'm Mm -hmm. sure she had gifted copies of, you know, Henry James and other people in her circle. So there's going to be a lot, I'm sure, for scholars Mm -hmm. to dig into there. So a lot of 
what I knew about Edith Wharton was from these tour guides. We arrived and there's like this courtyard. It's a courtyard. It feels very European. Mm-hmm. And then you enter into this like kind of a fancy hallway. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way she built it's built like um, on a rock. So like part of the house is on the rock and the other one has like a, a basement. But it's like it looks like it's symmetrical because that was her whole thing that everything had to look like it was symmetrical even though it's not. Even if it's not functional. Yeah, there's like, like that window's not real. That door um, is a fake. That door goes nowhere. <laughs> or or that door is entirely disguised. We saw both doors that go nowhere or doors that are so they blend into the wall. To the molding and yeah. everything that you can't see them unless they're open. Because there's not supposed to be a door there for symmetry. Yeah, and then you go like up the stairs and into there's a few rooms that they've restored to look like how it would have looked like while she lived there. Mm-hmm. And then also, and I, this was a, I don't want to say trick, but this was a thing that I saw historic home organizations make do in a number of cases where they don't have a ton of like original material is they would turn some spaces into exhibit mm-hmm. spaces or interpretive spaces. You know, I think of the Harriet Beecher Stowe mm-hmm. house or other houses like that to good effect. I mean, mm-hmm. it was very cool. Yeah. And they're, most of their third floor is is those kinds of spaces. And usually there's some given over to like their offices or the organization. Mm-hmm. They had um, like a bookshop. They had a they had a very nice, uh, very nice little bookshop. I think they have a cafe. Mm-hmm. I am not a big architecture, you know, I don't know a lot, but it had a real European feel to me, a real, almost like a villa kind of mm-hmm. feel, both as you're coming up and this courtyard and the white, it's all white, you know, kind mm-hmm. of, I don't know, whitewashed. So the light is reflecting. And then you go out the other side onto these sort of balconies or verandas that look out at the gardens. Very European feeling, which I guess is not surprising. Because if, as you learn about her life, although she was a, a New York-born person, very enmeshed in the societies of New York in her time. She was a big Francophile, but like spent most of her life in Europe. During this period of time, and I think they talked about this when we went to Mark Twain's house too, is when they kind of were running low on money, they would move to Europe for a while because it was cheaper to live there. Economize by going to Europe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, her dad. And that's one of the things that set her on that path too. I One of the books that I started, but I didn't finish, is one of her last books, it's called A Backward Glance, and it's a uh, autobiography. It's beautifully done. It's unmistakably Edith Wharton, the sentences and everything. Um, it is not a tell-all. It's very, people are like, she's telling you exactly what she wants you to know. But she talks about how early in her life, she's a very, very young kid. Her father had to do that because money was tight. But at the time, she didn't know that to why they were traipsing around Europe, you know. But it set in her heart this love of Paris, of all these places in Europe. So she she built the mount um, and the gardens too. When, so after the house tour, we went on a garden tour and there's... The garden is entirely reconstructed. Yes. Um, this is not a garden that survived in any way because the mount is one of those places that had a rocky road to... It was like a girl's school. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was the home of like an arts conservancy for many years and the kind of garden that Edith Wharton favored 
uh, it's a four largely sort of formal types of gardens mm-hmm. that require a lot of maintenance and i'm sure all those institutions had no interest in you know maintaining that level of ornament yeah we were in gosh i can't remember the names of the different gardens what was the one with the flowers in it oh i'm not going to remember i don't know the flower garden maybe they talked about like recreating this arbor that yes. was in her garden based off of photos yes and trying to determine how tall the arbor was based off of a photograph with a man standing next to it right and trying to see like how oh, tall he was they're like looking up his passport records yeah then, you know are people truthful about how tall they are <laughs> or was he measured but that just goes to show what we were talking about that incredible work that those mm-hmm. people are doing that i'm sure you don't think about until somebody tells you but they've it was fascinating we met for this garden tour with this very dapper gentleman the delightful you know sort of patrician new england accent and a little sun hat older gentleman and i was like wow this is this is a thing and and we went down into the garden and it was fascinating because they've there's a real feat of landscape design because they're they're trying to hew to a historical garden or the spirit mm-hmm. of a historical garden. It's very like, what would Edith want? What would Edith want? And they're looking at letters and descriptions and the photos they think are few, you know, few and far mm-hmm. between. But the climate in New England mm-hmm. has changed. Uh, different things have happened. And so they're making adjustments too because a garden is a living thing. Mm-hmm. It's not like Henry David Thoreau's desk, throw it in a glass cabinet, you know, keep the dust off it. You have to keep it alive. And I just thought that was, she had sort of a, I don't remember the name, kind of a Renaissance type garden. It was like an old European Mm -hmm. style garden with sort of a circular water feature in the center. And then uh, kind of a square garden that had um, colorful perennials and annuals, Mm -hmm. flowers, spring kind of a a garden. Although we were there in fall. And and he kind of kept mentioning that because, you know, it was not the most floriferous time. But it was still really lovely. And when you're in a formal garden like that, one of the things that's beautiful too, I mean, you could probably go there in winter. And one of the things is mm-hmm. the bones of the garden, the, the lines. Is, yeah. and the, it's all very statuesque. Yeah. One of the really fun things too about the mount is that because Edith Wharton was a dog lover, dogs are welcome to come. They're welcome to come in the house, on the tour, in the gardens. And they have this one is the one thing that's I think maybe the most just preserved is she had a little pet cemetery up on like a little knoll um, above the gardens where you can go and see like the little headstones she had made for her favorite dogs. She loved dog. Most of the photographs of Edith Wharton are of her with dogs. Yeah. There was, um, there were like three dogs on the tour. Yeah. You know, and they're like carrying these big doodles and stuff. (laughs) No, that was pretty delightful. And I don't know, we've jumped around a little bit in terms of like Edith Wharton's biography or like who she was. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned she was born to a family of some prominence and wealth in New York. And I think that's probably like the side of her that people know because her work falls into a few different kind of compartments, even though it's all unmistakably hers. People tend to know the society novels, which are the most famous, which sort of look at that culture she came out of both with a kind of a biting satire, mm-hmm. but also a love, a little nostalgia. When I'm reading A Backward Glance, which she's writing at the end of her life, when all of that is long gone, you know, this is in 1936, 1937, there's also a real love for that world of people and their particular habits and, and speech. And But then she also, and this is where the mount comes in, the other big wing of her work that people know 
is the New England work, novels that she wrote about New England. And, you know, she got beat up a little bit about all oh, whether they were authentic. You know, what does she, this, you know, New York City girl know about, you know, this? Yeah. But he talked about her driving in her touring car up into the hills and picking the wildflowers. And lo she loved, was, had a love affair with New England, which was arguably more successful than the love relationship she had with the man she was married to at that time, Teddy, who went a little crazy. Yeah, so she ended up only living at the Mount for a few years because it was at the end of her um, marriage. And her husband was, yeah, like losing his mind. He was a real good time guy. He was a real like party boy, you know, like sports and, you know, kind of happy-go-lucky guy. But then, yes, he started to have a lot of paranoia and fall apart. Mm -hmm. I think she was able to like arrange with his family for his care so she could kind of move on with her life. Move on, yeah. yeah. And, and her she... private life is very, like, she was very guarded. Mm -hmm. And people comment on that a lot. A lot of her letters were destroyed on her instruction. The autobiographical writing she wrote is beautiful, but not, like, reveal. you know, not very revealing. Like, uh, the people I read about writing about her autobiographical writings talked about how skillfully she evades uh, talking about people talk about a backward glance I think Teddy gets like a paragraph um, talking about that because she was having there were relationships with men she mm -hmm. was not married to but her era and you know the era of her books all of that stuff is very implied or kept in the shadows mm -hmm. yeah and when I, when I talk about House of Mirth that's like a lot of where like what's you know yeah, there's a couple ways we could go at this because I mentioned uh, the, the sort of wings of her mm -hmm. work, which I think are society novels, New England, and then short ghost story. stories. Short stories, including the, including the ghost stories. We've both read certain things. Mm -hmm. We've also each read other things. I think we each read what would be classed as a sort of society novel. Mm -hmm. We both read a New England novel. But neither of us read. So she's famously the first woman to have won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. Yes, she is. Which she won for Age of Innocence in, in 1921. Yes. But neither of us have read that one. We didn't. You know, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it's okay. We always want to remind you it's okay to not get to the end of the book or the finish, you know what you've bit off but uh we didn't get there let's start with her short stories okay let's just kind of go in the order of what we read so we ended up buying when we were in boston this like cute little tiny book uh, of one of her ghost stories i don't remember the publishing house but there was apparently this old tradition early america or, or you england. Know, some, in england of reading a ghost story at christmas and so this this house had this sweet idea to publish these like little books with short stories there's a Shirley Jackson, there's a there's Edith Wharton ones, there's other ones as well. And so we picked up one of those. It was pretty weird. Yeah. It was very, is that the one that was very cerebral? It's uh, called Mr. Jones. Yeah. Very cerebral ghost story. Yeah. She's like staying, this woman is staying alone in a house. She's not supposed to be alone. There's supposed to be like, you know, a servant there. But she wakes up in the night and is alone in the house. Yeah. And walks through and has this like haunting experience. But then in the morning, her servant's like, I've been here the whole time. Right. Yeah. It was very psychological. You're pretty much just in this woman's head as she gets more and more freaked out. Mm -hmm. I don't have a ton to say about her short fiction because I haven't read anything else besides that one story. So I don't know how it compares to other stuff. But 
she wrote a lot of those ghost stories. Mm -hmm. There's a whole volume we have here at the library mm -hmm. of her ghost stories. She also wrote a lot of, they called New York stories about the city. She was very prolific. I guess another thing that's important to say about her is that she had that early sojourn in Europe and went back. And then after a while, she just never came back. She spent, a, I don't want to say most, like a good portion of her life as an expat. And then after she, after she left at a certain point, I think in the teens, she only came back to the United States twice and was not very happy with either visit. There's a story of, so she had this big, like beautiful estate and was known for her attention to design and her love of like architecture and interior design. And wasn't there the story about how she was invited when the Vanderbilts opened their big like a state what i forget what that building I can't remember is what called. It's called but yes where she was like yeah yeah and she just never went yeah the mount is her most famous home and garden but she had two she made two different homes in france with beautiful gardens too i don't know how they're preserved or kept or anything i would love to to go sometime i want to say she went and then was very involved with the war the war effort mm -hmm. in france um you know world war one and then and then sort of stayed stayed forever but continued to write about Amer America. Yeah. Mostly. Um, so the next book, this one Austin bought at the little gift shop at the Mount. This like a little copy of Ethan Frome. Not the one we have now because it was lost in the post. Oh, yeah. So I had bought a copy of this, the Penguin Classics copy of Ethan Frome on a whim. And then read it. Yeah. The elegant tour guide had kind of been like, I don't know if you want to start with Ethan Frome, you know. So depressing. And so I went and bought it. <laughs> and I read it in two big gulps, like that night and then the following night in Vermont. I remember sitting there, you know, kind of looking out into the New England landscape and sitting there that night reading it. And it's a quick read. It's like a novella. It really is. Yeah. And then later I found this funky school edition in the Friends Book Sale. Um, so this is like a little copy, like they, like a classroom copy for like high school. <laughs> and the, it's from the early 60 there's a little stamp inside that says property board of education july 23rd 64 and it's kind of interesting because it has like somebody's school notes in the margins and it also has like a foreword that's like young students let me tell you about storytelling it's got a great cover it's like a butter yellow mm -hmm. with this garish red <laughs> lettering and a black kind of like outline of a, a buggy and horse and mm -hmm. landscape so ethan from is a new england novel mm -hmm. and it's set up with this like framing device where a man i love the framing device i gotta say <laughs> is new newish to this town he is. I can't remember why he's there. It's framed very much. This man has come to town. Starkfield, Massachusetts is the town. Yeah. And Ethan, he sort of sees Ethan from mm -hmm. the, the titular character from a distance. He's this like older man, like this character in and town. And he's immediately intrigued. And so the audience is immediately intrigued. I thought it was such a brilliant device because mm -hmm. the audience is so intrigued. And so that's how he starts to delve he wants to, he just feels this unaccountable desire to kind of know what this guy's deal is. Uh -huh. uh, and so he starts to talk to some other people and then at one point hires him to like drive him. Yeah, in to, his, in his uh, sleigh. Yeah. And then they're like coming home through a storm and they stop at his house, at mm -hmm. Ethan Frome's house. And they can't go any further. And Ethan is like, you could just stay with us here mm -hmm. tonight. And he's like, 
this house is weird. And then it goes back into like the history of of Ethan's life situation. The more I think about it, the more I think as far as I mean, and people will say about this book, it's brutal. And it is brutal. Like it's a very um, stark, stark field, stark mm-hmm. portrait. But it's so brilliantly done. Like she has that framing device. And then you go back into sort of like flashback basically mm-hmm. into Ethan Frome's life. And so you you have that dual sense of things. And then you you know you start to have your your investment in the characters of Ethan Frome's life in the past and it builds you up to a reveal mm-hmm. at the end that I think is one of the most cutthroat from the writer's perspective cutthroat and just it's brutal. So let's just get into spoilers, I'd say. So Ethan's married to a woman who's a little older than him. The story of how they came together was that his parents. What's her name? It's a great name. Uh, Zena. Zenobia. Zenobia. What is Zena? Zena is like her. Yeah. Short name. Warrior princess. But Ethan had had this kind of like future. He was going to college and he was interested in science and then his parents became ill and he had to come home and take care of the farm and take care of them and they had a cousin some sort of distant cousin come so she comes and takes helps take care of his family and then after his parents both pass away they get married and then she ends up being really like sickly and needing taken care of and there's this sense that she's got like a yeah there's some things you could really unpack a lot of things around the Zenobia character the idea is like she came I feel like his father dies and then his mother's ill and she comes and takes very stoic care of of them but is very like energetic and Mm -hmm. like robust and then his mother dies and she immediately as soon as they get married as soon as they get married becomes and this might just be his like resentment um, becomes ill, but it's it's implied heavily implied like hypochondriac mm-hmm. and a little bit like maybe manipulative with her uh-huh. how she uses her illness to like control him. Him, yeah. Uh, it makes me think that somebody could write like a counter novel. In, I don't remember. Did you say this already? Somebody write could write like a counter novel in the. Uh, in the vein of uh, like White Sargasso Sea, White Sargasso Sea, where they wrote from her perspective, from Zenobia's perspective, and it would be a totally different. Like, oh, you got her all wrong. Uh huh. Yeah. But in the world of this book, um, she's just like she's a pretty unlikable character. Yeah, very passive aggressive, and uh, yes, they end up getting another cousin to come. Yes, they, is she it... comes and lives with them, but it's kind of like her. Her father has passed away. She doesn't have any. She needs help. Anything. She doesn't have any money. And I think the idea is that Zenobia also needs help. Mm -hmm. And so that maybe there's a way to help this girl. Yeah, solve these two problems. Solve these two problems. So she comes to live with them to help take care of Zenobia. But also because otherwise she'd have to like get a job or something. Which is like in these books. (laughs) The two books that I read. The idea of a woman getting a job is like. Right. Terrifying. For slightly different reasons. In the society novels, is there's a diff- we're talking about two different ways of life here. But yes, yes, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's either like degrading or just like the jobs, I guess, in, in the Ethan Frome world would probably, that she's looking at would be, you know, real severe, mm-hmm. backbreaking type of work. 
And then she's like young and pretty and sweet. Mm-hmm. And Ethan falls in love with her. He does. And I think one of the things that happens and you could spend a lot of time like debating like who's sympathetic or unsympathetic in this book. I think what what's happening inside of Ethan is however much genuine sort of love he has for her. Um, I think he also sort of projects on her a lot. Mm-hmm. She reminds him of a version of himself that he lost, lost and a possibility that he lost. And so I think there's real questions in the book of sort of how much he sees her and how much of it's sort of a, uh, a projection, a mm-hmm. projection, um, which I guess doesn't matter. The result is the same. Yeah. And it's weird. He's weird. I don't know. When I was reading it, I kept like thinking like, you know, he is only like in his early 20s at this point where he's got this infatuation with this teenage girl who lives with him as like someone he's supposed to be taking care of. He's not like, you know, his brain's not done cooking. <laughs> sure. But it is weird. Like, you know, they make sure that she has like time to like socialize in town and he goes to like pick her up from the stance that she's at and he's like real jealous of the guys she's dancing, guys she's with. dancing with the single men in town and he feels his constraints yeah and he's yeah it's it's a little creepy like to me yeah but i guess not to her because she's just kind of like oh you know yeah she feels it too i guess zenobia gets her own kind of jealousy going she ends up going out of town to see a, a specialist, a doctor, about her pains. And it's this night that... What is the cousin's name? The, Maria? Or... Maddie. Maddie. Where Maddie and Ethan can kind of like play house a little while she's gone. They break some sort of special dish. and uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, the dish is like such a big yeah. deal. And uh, when Zenobia comes back, she's decided that she has to send Maddie away so that they can hire like a somebody who's better at keeping house than her and can really take care of her because um, the specialist has told her that she's not to work at all anymore. Right. And uh, it's just devastating for them. There's not a lot in this novel. I enjoyed it, and I thought it was, like, evocative uh-huh. and, like, well done. There's not a lot to, like, feel good about. Mm-mm. Like, about any of these characters, really. Like, Maddie's really, like, naive and kind of self-absorbed, and Ethan's, like, also self-absorbed and kind of creepy, and Zenobia's, like, fairly or unfairly portrayed in the novel as really annoying. Oh, and there's this whole thing with sledding. It's, like, Chekhov's sledding hill at the beginning of the book, And then this night that Ethan is supposed to be taking Maddie to the train to send her back to the city for, you know, her life of drudgery. They go around this hill and they're like, they would just stop and go sledding because they never got to go sledding. So they have this really nice sled down the hill and it's so fun. And they're like, let's do it again. What if, though, we hit this tree full on and then we won't have to worry about our futures anymore? So they they do. They make like this real short, brief kind of a suicide pact. They go down the hill. They hit this tree. And that's kind of the end of the flashback part of the book. Now we're like 20 years later and the guy's back 
maybe it's been more than 20 years 30 years it's been a while you get the sense that they're not like young people he's talking to somebody who was young like maddie's age and like just about to get married in the flashback part and now she's like grown telling him the story what happened was in that sledding accident neither of them died but both were disabled maddie more so than ethan he's got like a limp but she needs like full care and when they were brought back to ethan's house zenobia has this turnaround where all of a sudden she is the strong one she is able to spend essentially the rest of their lives taking care of them in a similar way that she had taken care like of his mother when they first met and that's that's kind of the sad story. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to convey, I guess reading it is the only way to really get it, quite how like hard the ending hits. They're all like sitting there in that room. These people who have this sort of like pretty intense feelings, you know, whether it's passion or disgust or whatever for each other, kind of all trapped together mm-hmm. for the rest of their lives. And then, you know, you kind of have the feeling of the waste of it, which is yeah. sort of like this stupid sledding suicide attempt and like all this it's just yeah but that's sort of the big reveal of that's the what's the deal with ethan frome Mm -hmm. right and people like know yeah but but it takes him a while to get people to like talk to him about Mm -hmm. it and at the point where they're at the sledding accident part i recognize in books uh, previous books i've read that reference this book, like kind of a backward reference. I'm like, oh, like that's what they were doing in that other book I read where I'm like, why is there a sledding accident? It's because it's like a reference to Ethan from. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a, a super real interesting book. Uh-huh. Um, a, a light read, a good beach read, um, <laughs> a good pick me up, inspirational. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like her. It's one of her gritty New England novels. And yeah. like I didn't get a chance to read the the one that they kind of always hold up alongside it it's even been published with it is summer Mm -hmm. which is apparently a very different like this one's sort of dark winter winter book yeah the other one is a different different thing didn't make it for this podcast but i plan to continue because i really do like her i find sometimes she's it's a it's some work to get with to kind of click into what she's doing but there is this unmistakable edith wharton kind of like crispness of the sentences and the scene setting. And she's an incredible sort of watcher of people, really Mm -hmm. good at getting those like oddities of character and people's foibles Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I definitely have moments where you're reading in any of these books where the way she set a scene, I think about that plotting device of the new, I think you might even be a doctor or something, the new doc or whatever Mm -hmm. who's come to town. The way she sets those scenes or where I'll just be like, oh, yeah, that's the, oh, the way you framed that is beautiful. And this is a small book. The other books that we each individually read for the, for today are bigger. are bigger and more complicated. Yeah. But she's really good at like atmosphere, too. I feel like oh. Ethan Frome is very like claustrophobic. Brooding. Yeah. You feeling like you're, you know, they're trapped. It's winter. Yeah. The winter like never ends. Yeah. Um, and the finality, I think mm-hmm. that's the word that comes to my mind about it, is the finality. That's what the book wrestles with, is the finality of your choices, mm-hmm. the finality of fate, mm-hmm. you know, sort of fate versus the individual. Yeah, none These of them really feel like... With, they're stuck, 
and then they make choices and then sometimes those choices lead them to be stuck in ways that are even more more stuck yeah irrevocable. worse yeah um and the cruelty of fate i think of it's a real kind of cruelty of fate book <laughs> I don't know. I think of like Tess of the D'Urbervilles or like books where it's sort of like. You can't escape. Like, gosh, the, you know, these guys don't make the greatest choices, but uh, fate or society or all these forces really just uh, grind them down. Yeah. So that's Ethan Frelm. Would recommend. Strangely, and I wasn't expecting this because I didn't know anything about House of Mirth. When I started, it ends in a similar way in a way. No. Mm-hmm. A sledding accident. A sledding accident. Oh, my gosh. So did the one I read. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so the house, one ending, house of Mirth. I have this lovely Norton Critical Edition, which you you don't like. I don't like them, <laughs> but it's got like footnotes. It's got all these essays oh, yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, um, clutter. Yeah, one of the things that was kind of cool that it has in all this deep back matter is reviews that came out on the book when it was published, which some of them I'm like, this isn't really saying anything about this book at all. You know, they're like, well, society, Edith Wharton. Right. So A House of Mirth is about a woman called Lily Bart, who is like a high society person who grew up in this high society with all of these wealthy people in New York. When she was, I think, just coming out into society, like in her late teens, her father's ruined his financial status is ruined and he doesn't live for very much longer but they have to like give up the house and she and her mother kind of make do for a while and then her mother also passes away and she her whole thing and now she's like 29 she's old but she's still looking to get married Mm -hmm. is that she has to marry a wealthy man because she has to maintain her lifestyle and she does have an income Mm -hmm. From whatever her her father had left that's, you know, livable for like a someone who's not like her. And she mostly lives with an aunt of hers who is very wealthy and like kind of helps take care of her. She also has all of these wealthy friends in whose circles so she moves and she can't like keep up with them. They're always like playing bridge and like gambling with each other and losing money. And but she can't ever she'll like get her eye on some man and she's like he's got what i need i'll make him fall in love with me she's also like very beautiful like reading this book you think probably like, the most beautiful person who ever lived because everyone's like oh lily bart people like her a lot mm-hmm. very charming very beautiful but when the critical moment comes she can't ever seem to like commit to any of these wealthy men that she thinks that she can marry there is like a counterpoint to them throughout the book of this man who she's friends with and likes what is his name Selden Mr. Selden he's a a lawyer so he has to work for a living which would be too hard for her but he does move in the same circles that she does and they kind of like keep almost coming together and then and then not he also is kind of not kind of he's mean to her like as the book goes on, it's worse and worse, where I felt like, oh, he's, like, messing. Like, he nags her. He makes her feel bad about having to, like, look for a wealthy husband. At the same time, he's like, well, I wouldn't marry you because you're so shallow. But really, you should want to marry somebody like me. Like, let's be friends. We have so much in common. I don't know. Do you think that comes out of resentment because he really does want her to marry him? I mean... I don't know. I felt that way 
for like the first half of the book. Mm. And then kind of by the end, I'm like, you're just, you're just a jerk. Like she keeps coming to him, you know, when times are desperate or she wants, you know, she wants him to like, I feel just like tell her that it would be okay if they got together and like their life would be good. Mm. And but he he likes all these things about her. He likes, you know, how well like she is, how beautiful and charming she is. But he doesn't like that everyone else likes it or that mm. all this stuff happens. Anyway, so in the beginning of the book, she's at this party. She's staying with her friends. It's like a party that never ends. You know, like everyone's staying at someone's estate. And she's decided to like go for this rich guy who's like boring but fine and she's supposed to like go to church with him in the morning and like go on a walk with him. And then Selden comes for the weekend and she ends up spending the whole time with him and like blowing off this other guy. So he decides she must not like him and he marries somebody else. And she's like, ah, I blew it. Like I'm such a dummy. And <laughs> so she decides that she's going to. There's also this divorced woman in the book who is in a similar situation as her where she doesn't have all this wealth but she like makes do by like asking other people's husbands for favors and getting these little like gigs as people's like social secretaries and stuff and she's like how come she can do that it's because she's been married and I can't because I'm single but she decides to kind of take a page from her book and ask her friend's husband for help investing Mm -hmm. and making money in the stock market because it was like really good at this time and people were just making all this money. There is this Jewish character in the book too and a lot of anti-Semitism around his character that runs through the whole book. But then at the end, that character ends up being like the only one who's kind to her. I read this interesting essay about someone who's Jewish talking about like kind of reconciling their love of Edith Wharton with her extreme anti-semitism that comes out in her novels but also she just would like plainly state in like letters and stuff talking about this character and it was really interesting but so he invests money for her and then gives her what he says he's earned and she's so naive about money and everything it takes her a while to realize he's just giving her money Mm. and that all of these rumors have started in her social circle about her like having an affair with him Mm. and like Mm. selling herself and Mm -hmm. and cheapening herself even though also in the book all of these characters around her are having affairs essentially like Selden is having this affair with this married woman in the beginning and he's broken it off and she doesn't want to and she ends up kind of being the villain in Lily's life I think because she's jealous of that and this like rumor mill that starts around this money ends up just destroying Lily's life and every time she has kind of like a way to make it better she kind of makes the wrong choice she ends up trusting this woman going on like a cruise with her and on their like luxury yacht with her and this man that she is wanting to have an affair with and her husband to kind of distract the husband (laughs) and then when the husband kind of gets wind of what's going on flips it and blames lily for having an affair with the husband even though she wasn't and like ruining her like Reputation. reputation and then her aunt dies and disinherits her and she ends up worse and worse she has this one friend who works with poor women who tries to like help her and she ends up living eventually in a boarding home in this tiny like closet room off the hallway and 
that Jewish man character is the one who comes and he's like, I help you. Like, I'll marry you. You're so beautiful and I like you. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I couldn't lower myself to do that, even though he's nice to me. She's been like working as like a hat maker and then like increasingly taking this drug to help her sleep. And at the end, what happens is she overdoses on it. The night before, like, she had gone to talk to Selden and she's like, I can't. I don't know what I'm going to do. Blah, 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 blah. And he still has this idea that she had had this affair with this guy. Kind of like a double standard on his part where he's like, she's tarnished or whatever. He doesn't respect her anymore. And then the next day, he kind of comes to see her and she's dead. And then he finds out that she'd gotten finally this like little inheritance from her aunt and she'd spent it all writing checks to pay off this debt she had to this friend she borrowed money from kind of unknowingly. And so he like respects her finally and now it's too late and the book is over. Yeah. And it's just like, oh my gosh. It She's kind good of... at doing that thing where you're like, mm-hmm. you're like watching all these characters and wh- whether you like them or you don't like them, you're interested in mm-hmm. them and you're kind of like, oh, don't, oh, don't do that. Like, don't trust oh. that person. Or like, oh, it's missed connection, too late. Yeah. Tragedy. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And no one ever like comes out and says stuff, you yeah. know? Oh yeah. So it's like- it's very all, subtle. Yeah, all their problems have to be like hidden behind, you know, oh, yeah. these formalities. Oh yeah, there's the problem and then there's like- Will the problem get talked about, or will it? You know, yeah, it's the... like they could help you if you tell them what your problem is. Or ways like her pride gets in the way because her friend who works with and helps poor women is independent woman. She's not rich, but she has an apartment and she lives on her own. And she's like, oh, I could never be like that. She could also never marry a Jewish person. (laughs) But her friend is like, you can just come and stay with me until you get back on your feet. There's room in my apartment for you. And she's like, no, no, I couldn't do that. I'll just live in, you know, this closet instead. Taking laudanum or something. Uh Yeah. Oh, and there's right the night before she dies, too. She's like on this walk in the park and she's so sad. And she runs into this woman who her friend her friend had talked about, oh, this woman can need so much help. And she had just gotten this money from the guy. And she gave her like $200 mm-hmm. to help this woman. And she remembers. And she sees her in the park. And she's like, you help me get on my feet. And she brings her to her little apartment for tea. And she's got like a husband and a little baby. And she's like, I'm so grateful to you, Lily. You made this possible for my life to be like this. Mm-hmm. And she feels both kind of like a yearning for that kind of like domestic family situation but also kind of stills like class mm-hmm. disgust about like, mm-hmm. like look at this crappy apartment that they have. <laughs> so it's like her own wow. pride gets in the way of her having like a life. Yeah. It's, it's like a tragedy. And all of the people who she thought were her friends right. are all just, except for the divorcee tries to keep helping her. So kind the of people the, who help her, she won't let them. And then the other people they won't, they don't help or her. Or all the people that that will help her or kind of the people that she had the least respect oh. for at the beginning. Wow. Yeah. The woman who lives alone, the divorcee who's always like playing different angles with people, you know, the Jewish businessman and then like the lawyer. <laughs> She's like, you guys are fine. Isn't it funny how lawyers is really treated differently in these older like, <laughs> oh, he's a, law- a lawyer. He has to work. So pedestrian. Or a living as a lawyer. Gross. Yeah. It's, Tragic. And then there's like a bit of thing at the end, too, where it's like the police are going to come around her place and they let her friend like kind of have the room mm-hmm. if there's something that he needs to find so that the police can rule it an accident. 
Oh, like a wink, wink. Yes. So there's like definitely a thing where like he's with her and kind of saying goodbye, but also like he has to find if she left a suicide note or anything. To avoid that final tarnish. Yes. Tarnish. Mm -hmm. And it isn't clear even like the last part that's kind of in her perspective. She's really like out of it. She has this like dream or like hallucination. And you as like a reader are kind of like, was it an accident? Mm. You know? Wow. Wow. That sounds interesting. There's a lot going on. Yeah. The novel I read is like that too. Uh, I, I think this. These is novel- yours sad at the end? Yeah, in a different way, maybe in a subtler, you know, way. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of these, the most famous of the society novels are published pretty close together within the teens, within like a few years. But I read The Custom of the Country, which I had also picked up a copy of when we were in New England. There's a new edition that just came out, too, that has a an introduction by Gia Tolentino, who's this young essayist who's gotten a lot of attention, um, writes for The New Yorker. Oh, it's hard to even know how to talk about the custom of the country. There's so much going on. So you were telling me the main character, she's terrible. Well, it's not so simple as that. But (laughs) I'll I'll start. It's maybe even bigger than this one, the House of Mirth. It's but but the main plot is the main character is Undine Sprague. Mm -hmm. And she is in New York City. It hasn't been there very long with her parents. They've come from somewhere in the Midwest that's sort of very vaguely described. It's called Apex. That's the name of the town. It deals a lot with, and I think it's interesting because I'm always interested in literature from like a long time ago that cuts through to you today. Like there's a lot of real intricate kind of like class distinctions Mm -hmm. and distinct rich and new rich. And you know, this, Mm -hmm. um, they in Apex, her father, who I don't know what you would call his job. He's like, a businessman, you don't know. You know, he makes investments and mm-hmm. stuff. Was involved in some kind of deal involving the water utility. Has a whiff of grift around it. But their situations have arisen. And so now they are, particularly the mother and Undine, on a quest to sort of raise their social stations along with, you know, sort of their financial stations. So they've come to New York Mm -hmm. and the father is this kind of, I don't know, he's kind of likable, but exasperated. He's always like the wife and the daughter are always able to sort of like play him to give him more money or to like break down and like, oh, she wants opera box seats. She must have opera box seats for the season Mm -hmm. and they must be this and da, 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 da. And he always like, I can't do it. And then he's just like, okay, I guess I'll just work another 12 hour day you know okay there's a little bit of a thing that like the sprags are a little bit like in awe slash horror of their daughter and her ruthlessness in social climbing Mm. but they've sort of created the monster but it's one of those things too where i would you wouldn't call indian sprig a a likable character but you're fascinated by her you can't look away you know we talked about anna delvey who Mm -hmm. was i can't remember the name of the series but the con woman um, that much has been made of uh-huh. in recent years. And it reminded me a little of Becky watching the Netflix series. Although I think Undine Sprague is more likable than her, this kind of hollowness at the center of this person that's just, you know, driving them. They'll do anything and nothing is ever enough. And so you follow Undine as she she sort of makes all of these maneuvers trying to trying to like get into the right set and the right and she's always learning new things like oh the set she thought was right isn't right mm. and, da, 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 da. 
and um, she's kind of angling for there's these levels of families and there's these big families that everybody's like, oh, the, the Van Degans, the Driscolls. And she's kind of angling for some of those people. But she ends up connecting with this guy, Ralph Marvel, who's a really interesting character. He kind of like meets her and decides he needs to save her in a way that's kind of gross and naive mm-hmm. on his part. But he's actually, you know, more sympathetic than she is. And you end up feeling bad for him because he doesn't realize what he's getting into and how shallow isn't even a word that covers it, how like a black hole she is. Mm-hmm. And yeah okay you know what i mean yeah. they, they have a and they have a son together which she doesn't care about at all she's quite upset that they get pregnant she <laughs> like they go on this honeymoon to europe and he's all excited and she hates everything that doesn't have to do with like the social climbing so like he's arranged all these things to go off into the italian villas alone mm. she hates it because um, there's no one to see her there yeah the disappointment there's a dis the, one of the disappointments with Ralph marvel is like he has an incredibly pedigreed name but there's not that much money. Mm. They find out he just doesn't come with that much money, and so she's roving. And you know, uh, the way the book is described is sort of following her marriages and affairs, mm-hmm. and it does. You know, she's with him, and then she ends up kind of like with this member of French aristocracy, and then she ends up with another guy. There's sort of false starts. She's double crossed by some of these men through that. Edith Wharton is able to explore all these different sort of social sets. You really get to see her love of France. France comes into this book in a big way because everybody's going over to Paris for the Mm. spring, you know, and she marries into this French aristocracy and then finds that way too constricting um, and is making all these moves. She doesn't, the boy, it's really sad, Paul, the, she doesn't care much about him, you know, but she makes a play to get him from his father who has custody because she needs money. And she thinks she makes a play for him. The family in New England will eventually just pay her off. But instead, she ends up with the boy because when it becomes clear that she's going to get him, Ralph Marvel kills himself. Yeah. It's you know, those a lot mo- of suicide in Edith Wharton books. You know, those moments where you're like, oh, you know, Ralph Marvel's a really sad character. Through this whole thing, there's this character named Elmer Moffat who was in Apex at the same time her dad did that deal. And he's around and she's very like afraid of him at the beginning because he knows things, mm-hmm. right? He's a specter from the past, but he becomes a real like Wall Street whiz, new rich, makes all these deals. Eventually they end up together and it kind of seems like she's finally met the person who's also kind of like a mm. real, one of the big reveals is it turns out that they were married, oh. her and Elmer Moffat early and then it was their family put an end to it you know there's all these secrets she didn't want to get out but like it gets to the end i'm not describing it very well but it like it goes through all these chapters of these husbands and her machinations and this endless hunger for something she doesn't really know what it is status or, or something and at the end of it and it jumps in time in different books the end of it she's married to elmer moffett you know, they've kind of like won a lot of the sort of things that seemed like they wanted to win. Mm-hmm. And Paul is there and he's like kind of sad. You feel bad for Paul, you know, because his his parents are terrible. His stepfather and his mother are terrible. And there's this scene at the end where, you know, it seems kind of like she's won or what she's got, whatever she And they're having like a dinner and something comes up about the ambassador. And she says to Moffat, like, you should be an why you could be the ambassador to, to to France or you could be the ambassador, and he goes no 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 like you could never be an ambassador's wife you've been divorced, 
and you see this like it starts she's like well well we'll see <laughs> like you know it leaves you with this kind of like she's not done yeah it was a slog it was a long mm-hmm. intricate novel but at the end of it i just you know those novels you finish where you just keep thinking about them and yeah they keep kind of deepening mm-hmm. yeah i think the house of mirth it just draws this like real line between like what's expected of her because she's unmarried and what literally anyone like any of the other women in the book can do because all of the married women in the book they just do whatever they want they spend more money than they can they have affairs with other men they live these like extravagant lives and like no one cares but even a whiff of something on her has these like dire consequences the whole thing is where she tries to like flirt with her friend's husband so he'll help her with money i think she has this idea that he can just access her money and then invest it for her and get her some big returns and there's this like confrontation with him where she's like realizing how naive she's been because it kind of reminded me of like a theater Dreiser novel about these Mm. women who have like oh they're successful and they're making it they're gonna do it and then like you know uh they end up like you know destitute or like dead she helps this newer family throw this beautiful party where they do like scenes where people dress up like paintings and she picks one as hers this kind of natural scene where she's like not wearing as much dresses as she normally would and people are like oh my gosh she's so beautiful selden is like I have to have her like it's like clicking for him right they're gonna make it work and they have this moment at the party where they're like you know like infatuated with each other and he like sends her a note and he's like when can I see you the next day and she's like come at four and then before that earlier that night her her friend says that she's in town sends her note and asks her to come and visit and she goes And she's canceled and decided not to come in town. And the husband, who's the one that she's been borrowing money from, was supposed to tell her that. And he didn't and has her come to the house. And then he's like, I've been doing this for you. You haven't even been paying attention to me. You know, he like she owes him. And she's getting like really scared that he's going to assault her. But she ends up kind of like successfully getting out of the house and she goes out into the street and like gets a cab or whatever and go to her friend's house because she can't make it all the way home she's so upset and Selden is out with her cousin a man and they see her coming out of the house and the cousin's like please don't tell anybody about this is like they'll make Lily look bad and he's not going to tell anybody but it totally changes his mind about her He's like, oh, she's tarnished. She's been having this affair with this guy. Like he thinks immediately like all of the worst Mm -hmm. things. She ends up spending that night at her friend's house, her friend who's like the independent woman. And she doesn't tell her what happened, but she's just like so upset. And the next day she's waiting for Selda to come and like propose basically. And he just never comes. And she finds out that he's gone on like a cruise. (laughs) And that's when she goes. Classic move. Ghosted and gone on a cruise. <laughs> and that's when she goes on the cruise that, with that one woman that eventually like brings her whole world crashing down. Mm, wow. And it's just so sad. Yeah, I think one of the things when I just think this is like a good thing of, of a good novelist, too, is that 
she does a really good job of, you know, these are sweeping books, right? Uh-huh. But she within them, she's so good at the little human moments mm-hmm. and the little things where you just like, oh, like, oh, like even if you don't, they're, she, don't, she doesn't write like characters you love, right? right? But you're you're still like, oh. And then, you know, I think you talk about Edith Wharton, a woman of her time, which people will try to use that as an excuse. Not an excuse at all, but a fact. But one of the things of her time that I think she's probably more progressive on, although I don't know that, you know, she's the kind of person who would have liked that term at the <laughs> time, is women and women's role in the world mm-hmm. and women's, you know, she didn't have formal education. I don't know if you knew that about Edith Wharton. No formal education. Her brothers received education. And I think through her novels, you see that she has some real beefs with the society and what it does to women. Mm-hmm. And I think Anine Sprague, not a sympathetic character, but in a certain way also a creature of of the society. Mm-hmm. You know, the forces that acted upon her. And a tragic character in that way where it's like, this woman is not able to connect with people she's not able to to have a relationship mm-hmm. with her child or or have a, a like a meaningful romantic relationship and some of that oh you could lay that on her as an individual mm-hmm. but i think the subtext is is that she's a creature created out of the society mm-hmm. that gilded who's now you gilded know age society not able you know there is no end to the hunger yeah you know and it's like and yes people keep getting hurt yeah like yes lily bart is really shallow but, like, that's what everybody likes about her. Right. Like. <laughs> well, and a lot of times these women are, like, doing what they have to do or doing what they think they have to do mm-hmm. or they've been told they have to do. And, you know, she seems. And you see this in Ethan Frome, too, as flawed as the characters are, you know, her interest in the positions we find ourselves in in life. Yeah. And how they constrain us in that time, especially how class constrains mm-hmm. us. Even some t- some of these like minor gradations in class where it's like, oh, well, he, you know, yeah. made his money in the stock market, but he made his money by like, you know, I don't know, investing. Or just inheriting profits it. Profits from slavery, you know, like, yeah. whatever, you know, like. Yeah, like the way that, let me look up this. His... Yeah, it's like cleaner to have inherited the money. Mm-hmm. You don't have to muddy yourself with business. Yeah. Mr. Rosedale is the name of the Jewish man in this book and at the beginning like a few of the characters are like oh you'll have to be nice to Mr. Rosedale because he's making a lot of money and you know he'll be able to like he'll have more power than you soon and kind of by the end of the book that's closer to the case but I feel like at the same time that like Edith Warden is like criticizing this like upper class obsession with like appearance and like keeping up with each other the thing in the the book that she doesn't like about that character or that's bad about that character is that like he cares about that too like he's trying to become like a person in society but he doesn't care so much about that kind of like gossipy part of that like at the beginning Lily goes to Selden's house for tea and he sees her coming out of the house or the apartments the bachelor apartments alone and he kind of teases her about it and she's like, oh, I was just at my dressmakers. And he's like, there's no dressmakers there. I own that building. <laughs> but he's not going to, like, tell anybody. Or, like, he wouldn't really have cared if she was seeing a man there. And to me, in, like, this century, I find that a good thing about that character. But I feel like at that time where she was writing, that was, like, hmm. something she saw as, like, a bad thing, hmm. maybe. Maybe, Yeah. It's interesting. And it's interesting, like, uh, sex and violence and things play a role in these books. Very subtle. Uh-huh. Very implied. Yes. 
I mean, this is a woman who's like having all these affairs. Mm-hmm. Very off and very artfully done, but like very off screen. Um, and and Wharton never wrote about some of the things that there's a lot of surmising about things she went through. She would not write directly about any of that stuff. And I talked before about the A Backward Glance, which is the most famous of her autobiographical books. And it's gorgeous sort of pastiche of, of all these things that this person is remembering, you know, at this later stage in their life. It's a real rich life. Um, and she's got the chops, you know, to put it mm-hmm. into these beautiful scenes but she knows exactly she's telling you nothing she's giving away nothing of herself but you also see that you know she she sort of made her name as somebody who came up in in some position of this aristocracy spectrum in new york and so had the sort of inside knowledge and, and and the writing chops to like to make slice it up you know and to make this art of these things and i'd be interested to see what people thought of these novels as they were coming out because mm-hmm. we read them too as like they have the novelty of these cultures of yeah them. but at the time they were like contemporary novels. well let me tell you if you get these norton critical editions oh, yeah. it has those reviews in well, them I, I i was just thinking about she has the those chops to do that but you really see later in life too she betrays a little maybe this is what she she gives away a little bit her love for it because it's like it's her home mm-hmm. it's her it's her people. Mm-hmm. And so you can see too, so she's sort of appreciating, you know, a certain kind of speech, a certain kind of brownstone in New York City, mm-hmm. a certain kind of way that like her parents were. And she's sitting there in France in 19, you know, between the world wars, a different world. It's about to be even more different. The war's mm-hmm. ramping up and uh, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's all gone. Um, and there's something really moving about it. Um, yeah. And then the loss too of, she eventually like the loss of all that wealth in in the depression. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I want to just briefly touch on was that we started to watch um, an adaptation, a film adaptation of the house of mirth that's starring Julian Anderson of X-Files fame and a slew actually of really prominent, prominent actors. actors. And it was so weird. And I thought like, I looked up like old reviews of the movie when it came out. It was really well reviewed, but the, I like don't know. the line delivery. Is I so... was sick, but even so, I was like, it... usually I am all over us watching adaptations. I'm like, I have no interest in this. It like, was we watched like what ten minutes, ten minutes, and and I love Jillian uh, Anderson, but it was so. The whole thing felt so hokey, and like kind of like the Very their line delivery. Their and... line delivery was so like stilted and weird. I was like, what? And like the f- film quality was kind of like hazy, like a dream or something. Yeah, I didn't. I, it made me wonder if there are other adaptations. It doesn't seem like there's been real recent ones. There's not ones, a ton. Real uh-uh. recent ones, which surprises me a little. And I wonder, so the new edition, this is the, sort of my final. I think there might, there's Age of Innocence, but I didn't want to watch that because. Oh, we haven't read it. Because I haven't read it. My final sort of thing is, I mentioned that I'm, I'm interested and the fact that Edith Wharton is one of our classic authors here at the library uh-huh. who people still love. Um, interested in sort of the parallels. and the I haven't read the whole thing. I started reading Gia Tolentino, who's a culture writer and essayist. Um, she has the foreword of the new edition of The Custom of the Country. And I, I mentioned the parallel with Anna Delvey. Mm-hmm. 
there's ways in which this culture, this hyper image, attenuated culture, I think takes on a, a particular resonance in our social media mm-hmm. culture. And she was kind of talking about that. Like, oh, if Undine Sprague was here now, she'd have 10,000 or, you know, a million followers or whatever. Like, yeah, it makes me really interested. And I think about adaptations too, both because there is a vogue. Oh my God. This is Downton Abbey time, right? Mm-hmm. This is the era. There's a vogue for period stuff. Mm-hmm. But also her characters, I think, they have something to say to us today because they're human and mm-hmm. because she's just good at capturing human behavior. But also, like, they're living in a society of extreme wealth inequality, mm-hmm. um, extreme obsession with image, mm-hmm. things that I think a lot of us could uh, re- resonate with. Yeah. That's sort of my final thought is that, like, I, I think that's one of the magic things about literature, right, too, is that, like, so Edith Wharton died in 1938, 1937. And she's cutting right through to us here in a world she could probably scarcely imagine. And I yeah. think that's pretty amazing, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Well, I think we'll end it there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Our next author up is Jacqueline Woodson. Jacqueline Woodson. Um, who we're reading for National Poetry Month. She is a poet, a picture book writer, a uh, novelist, mm-hmm. a memoirist, a busy lady, a, a children's ambassador to literature. So um, I think it'll be really cool. I think she, I do too. Uh, so with that, I'll just thank everybody for listening to your show. For mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye. Bye-bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.